Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. We've got Joe Eaton and Paul Callahan with me tonight, and I'm Vanessa Taholka. And uh, I can't hear myself in my mic. It'd be awesome if we could turn up this little white knob that I can't reach behind a safety filter. Amazing. The technology works. Good job. Good job. Um, and uh, I wondered what you were gesturing while yeah, playing about. Because I can't hear anything. So uh, it would be great if it was all the way up. Thank you so much. That's better. Hey, so tonight we explore the findings of a Productivity Commission review into how Australia manages our e-waste We'll be spat- chatting to Professor Akbar Ramdani from Swinburne University all about that and some alternatives to letting things even become e-waste, which I think is very exciting. Super important, given all of the chip shortage issues that are floating around. Yeah. And what's coming up later in the show, Paul? Uh, then later on, we have an interview. Uh, we'll be speaking with Julian Burnside, who's going to drop in to discuss new revelations in Julian Assange's case. Excellent. Yeah. But, it's but, a never-ending case, isn't it? It's never-ending. Um, but we'll hear more later on. Um, let's kick off with some news, though. Let's do that. Lots of Microsoft news this week. Um, they have launched a whole lot of plans for Windows 11. So lots of good things for people who use that product as one would expect, but there were three points of significance that a lot of people are talking about. First of all, they're going to be integrating a consumer version of Microsoft Teams, everybody's favourite web conferencing technology. Microsoft. (laughs) Um, And what's interesting about that is that there are some antitrust bills that have been introduced in the United States earlier this month, which explicitly cover Microsoft as a company with more than 600 US billion market cap. Uh, and uh, normally, you know, they would say you're not allowed to integrate um, a version of this sort of separate streamed product with very different purpose to your operating system in bundled with your operating system in our US market because you're stitching up a lot of consumers and it's affecting the fair competition of um, your competitors in that space. So quite an interesting move there uh, and we'll see ramifications over the next months. There's a lot of antitrust action in the States of Amy Klobuchar heading that up for the Senate committee. And, and Microsoft have been down this path, you know, many, many times before. So it's kind of, it's curious what their play is here. You know, like, do, do they think they're just I think get... they want to challenge it again. It's yeah. time, they, you know, maybe they think it's time to take a stand Hard to imagine that that would be a good idea. But anyhow, who knows what's going on there? I guess we might see. Maybe they want to lose a little, win something else. Yeah, like five years of consumer teams on all (laughs) these machines is maybe a win for them. Yeah. So second of all, um, Microsoft are going to run Android apps from the Amazon App Store um, as floating windows rather than... um, you know, Because Chromebooks can run Android apps and Macs can run iPhone apps, but their devices have not had that ability to run Android apps, so they're keeping up with the competition there. Um, Critics, I guess, are saying that it's a terrible user experience, that there's real security vulnerabilities that this sort of feature introduces, but there's an element of we need to be seen to be keeping up with the Joneses here. So that's that's an interesting decision also. Um, Finally, at the end of the Microsoft event, their CEO, Satya Nadella, gave a five-minute speech about Windows as an open platform for competition. And 
it sounds like he's, you know, ringing the bells, waving the flags and sort of saying we're positioning Microsoft as a competitive alternative to Google and Apple and saying that they are competitive, which is, well, that they are they are for open comp- yep. competition and fair a fair playing field, which seems in contradiction with the first thing that we talked about. So, yeah, mystery times at Microsoft. Yeah, and, and it's also in contradiction with the other piece of, of news about the hardware requirements. Um, so for those of you who've been following this, Windows 11 is obviously kind of entering this sort of this beta stage, um, but they've announced some of the initial thinking around the hardware requirements. Um, and normally Microsoft kind of have been, they've supported like lots of legacy hardware, um, which has the the side effect, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, of like malware being really easy <laughs> to, you know, being a major issue on the platform. So part of their Microsoft's opening kind of salvo for Windows 11 is that they're going to push for the hardware requirements to to have a more modern BIOS structure. Um, so the bit part um, that supports features like Secure Boot and also TPM 2.0, which stands for Trusted Platform Module. Um, and similar to the other pitches that Microsoft is making, um, they're flagging this as security. Initial tests and initial research that they've done um, suggest that this reduces um, malware by 60%, apparently. So... Within all of this kind of talk about like openness, they're also pushing the security angle. What this does mean is that there's huge amounts of hardware out there that just isn't going to support that. Um, and Microsoft hasn't made a full final decision. They're still exploring and they're still kind of gathering the data. See, this I can kind of understand more because the amount of maintenance to keep a Windows machine secure and the perception of that over time is so much higher than, say, in the Apple ecosystem that surely, you know, you can actually understand the need here. From from a forward-thinking forward perspective, but there's a really interesting quote um, from Kevin Beaumont, who's a security expert mm. um, who spent some time working at Microsoft during the pandemic. And in and, and Twitter, he points out that, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, when organizations are hurting <laughs> and when there's a global yes. chip shortage, yeah. Microsoft are basically, you know, their salvo is to get you to replace stuff for security reasons that are still not entirely clear. Um, so it's an interesting set of decisions. It sounds like yes. there's a number of interesting decisions that Microsoft are making right now. Well, it, it feels like they've just flipped their philosophical position on wearing the security vulnerabilities, but having the flexibility and extensibility and openness to all these random devices. Yeah, yeah. And I guess we'll just need to see how it, how it plays out. Like as you said, with with you know the comparison to Apple, where the hardware is pretty fixed and the security stuff is 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 already there, and they have their own silicon. There was some interesting kind of conspiracy theory stuff where it's like have Intel paid Microsoft you know, off to introduce this new technology to sell new chips. Um, so, so yeah, this is obviously, it's, it's an early stage piece of, piece of thinking from Microsoft, so we'll come back to this as it develops. I love that you mentioned chips there. I mean, they have traditionally had a really strong relationship between uh, Intel and Microsoft, but with the current chip shortage, you would be wondering if now is the time to be pushing the chip angle. Yep. The other part of that is uh, there was an interesting article that came out just a couple of weeks ago about Amazon and people looking into the amount of products that they um, – What's the word for when you kind of bin stock rather than sell it, like your dead stock or just returns, you know, all this incredibly wasteful behaviour 
being revealed, including um, throwing away perfectly good things. And in a way, I think there's a competition argument there too. It's so other people can't sell them at a discount and what have you. And that's a problem too. People are saying, how much is Amazon contributing to the chip shortage because of the trashing of all of these devices with chips in them that should have found a home in the marketplace, in a fair and open marketplace? And I think there's still, you know, questions of supply chains and and the kind of the opaqueness of of where our devices come from and the recyclability and and all of that stuff. Like I think, and again, this idea of of where do those machines go that Microsoft are going to make obsolete? What happens to them? Um, what happens to them in five years, I think, is a really important question. Yeah. Hey, moving on off from Microsoft and onto Zoom, there's a bit of news on the Zoom front, which I think speaks to the sort of thing that we thought technology would be doing for us in some, <laughs> you know, unimagined time in the future. And that is the idea of delivering on real-time translation. Now, we are only talking about the transcription type of captioning translation, but there is that vision of how do we have the Babel fish? How do we have something um, translating and helping people communicate in real time? They have acquired a company known as Kites and they're working on creating real-time translation and transcription software. Now, lots of web conferencing already does provide, say Microsoft Teams, for example, will provide um, transcription if you turn on recording of your session and then allow their transcription OCR to to go through and pick things up. Um, so lots of people are trying to solve this problem at the moment. There's no doubt that having really good captioning and real-time captioning would increase accessibility for so many users. So it is definitely a good problem to solve. Um, will this be part of solving it? Who knows? <laughs> Guess we it's can, vaporware for we'll now. Find, <laughs> they've, just, they've, they've spent some money to buy a thing. Yes. Like hopefully it will happen. Yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> such a downer. Such a downer. <laughs> I'm sticking with downers. So realistic. <laughs> um, if you have a, a Western digital cloud drive uh, that's a couple of years old from probably around 2018, you maybe want to want to have a look at it because um, just in the past uh, couple of days, uh, a number of vulnerabilities uh, have been – well, I mean, the vulnerabilities are quite old. Um, there may be a couple of years, um, but they've been actively exploited. And it looks like they've been exploited in sort of two different directions or by two different hacker groups. Um, so one group um, basically managed to exploit one of these vulnerabilities to turn all of these Western digital live cloud drives into a huge botnet um, without people knowing. And then the second group appears to have actively wiped the drives. Um, that or, is nasty. Or changed all the passwords so the data is um, is no longer available. Um, the firmware on these devices hasn't been updated uh, in a few years, so it's it's definitely... A pretty, a pretty significant issue. Um, initially, Western Digital's advice was to unplug your uh, cloud drive from the internet, um, but they have just um, revealed that they're going uh, prov- yeah, to... Have an air-gapped cloud drive. Yeah, have an air-gapped cloud drive. They're going to uh, provide some data recovery services, um, and also uh, some of the MyBook Live customers will be eligible for a trade-in program. So if you have one of those devices um, that's a couple of years old, um, maybe check it out and make sure that, that you haven't been impacted by that. I think I have one of those devices. Anyway. (laughs) Triple R. 
A Productivity Commission review has found it should be easier for Australians to get their smartphones, tablets and other devices repaired or replaced. Akbar Ramdani, who is Professor of Extractive Metallurgy and Metals Recycling, as well as the Director of Fluid and Process Dynamics um, at Swinburne, is with us tonight to discuss the issue. Welcome, Professor. Uh, Hi. uh, Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Do you mind if we call you Akbar? Yes, it's fine. Perfect, thank you. So what exactly did the Productivity Commission review have to say around all of our e-devices? Yeah, so basically, um, uh, from the consumer perspective, uh, it is clear that, um, you know, the consumer has the right to to um, to have their, you know, electronics product, uh, smartphones, tablet, to be uh, easily repaired and replaced. Um, but I just want to also give some a different perspective on, on this one because it's not as easy as, you know, uh, to do that. Because um, basically if uh, we look at current uh, technologies, including mobile phone, um, in a sense they are getting more difficult and more uneconomic to be repaired or replaced. For example, um, they, they contain uh, a lot of smaller components. And, um, for example, the, the touchscreen uh, of a mobile phone it's not a regular glass. It basically has many layers. Um, you know, uh, it, it contains uh, special metals such as indium, tin. Um, so, from the manufacturing perspective, it's all, it's quite expensive to to uh, to make it. So, um, so I think it's more the question: Okay, is it worth it to 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 get it repaired or uh, yeah? So, so we have to look at uh, from 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 both sides there. So what's the um, what's the drive then for the for this question? You know, if if we're sort of looking at you know the complexity of these devices, like where does the drive for this right to repair um, come from? Um, um, well, basically, um, some yeah, some people want to have uh, their device uh, for a long time, right, and um, to be able to uh, use it for for a long time and. Um, and that's also quite difficult because, as, as you can imagine, um, uh, currently you know, the technology requires to um, deal with uh, a lot of data, for example, which means that uh, you know, it needs to be updated. It needs to, it needs to be able to sort of process this uh, uh, the, uh, for the needs. So, um, yeah, I guess we also need to look at it in a balanced view on, on this one. Mm. So, Akbar, some of the materials used in phones, we know you've got, you know, rare earth um, metals and things that are quite expensive and valuable. Um, And I wonder what the thoughts are on, you know, being able to design things so that they're more easy to be recycled so that we can reuse those sort of materials. Yeah, so that's that's actually one of the things that uh, can help uh, the situation. So currently, uh, product designers uh, are sort of uh, under pressure to to uh, to develop uh, product that is yeah, easier to be uh, recycled. Um, and it's not easy though, uh, because as you can imagine, uh, now everything getting uh, smaller, and um, and you have quite a complex design. For example, if you look at your your mobile phone, um, you you will have about four or five antennas. Um, for the cellular network, for the GPS, for Wi-Fi, for Bluetooth. Now, for that to be able to fit into a small 
uh, devices, then you have to have a um, design that is in, that is intermingled. So, um, so if we want to be able to break that down easily, um, it's, it's also a challenge there. Mm. But definitely something that the designer is looking at right now uh, for, for new technologies. Akbar, do you think that there have been um, any good signs of people being able to make electronic devices more modular so that different companies are encouraged to reuse the same sorts of manufacturing components and to make the whole process less heavy on on materials? Yeah, um, so that's also one of the one of a possible solution there. So, um, like previously, as we know, we can replace, uh, uh, for example, battery easily. <laughs> um, but now it's it's more difficult to do that. Um, um, so, um, um, yeah, so it's just one of one of the things that we should sort of aim for you know, to to have some sort of modular. Uh, um, you know, uh, devices where some part can be uh, reused or, or replaced easily. Um, Akbar, you've talked, you've mentioned um, sort of the consumer view of this, and, and also sort of the the product designers. Where, how do those elements intersect with kind of broader regulation, both in Australia and overseas? Mm. So, um, well, first of all, um, maybe we can look at the what's inside this uh, mobile phone or this electronics. So basically, if you look at this electronics, it contains uh, more than 40 elements, right? Uh, some of them um, quite uh, hazardous elements. Um, chlorine, for example, and also uh, um, um, uh, 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 and other sort of elements that needs to be uh, um, you know, processed. So we cannot really put that into a, uh, into a landfill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, there is a um, valuable elements in there, such as gold and silver, uh, that um, actually uh, provide the driving force for the uh, recycling of, of this uh, mobile phone. So um, the regulation relates to how we deal with these hazardous elements uh, and how the the how we actually recycle these uh, uh, these devices, because um, you know uh, to recover some of these elements. Um, broadly speaking, uh, doable in your own backyard, but um, um, but that can, if, if not uh, done properly, you can have emissions of uh, hazardous elements into uh, into atmosphere or into, or into water. So uh, there's a regulation about that uh, uh, emissions there. So famously, uh, I think a lot of people have seen documentary footage of, of people in, um, you know, in poor parts of the world burning electronic waste, um, really, you know, creating a lot of toxic, uh, toxic smoke from plastics and things in order yep. to get down to the metals, the, the, the valuable metals inside phones um, and, other, and other technology, I guess. Um, yep. Where, you know, have we seen any any good solutions to this sort of problem? Have Have you seen anything in your work? Um, yeah. So, um, so basically, um, it comes down to the the way we uh, we recycle it. So, um, so there are a number of ways to to recover these elements. So we can use high temperature. We can use uh, chemicals. Um, and we can use uh, electrochemical sort of uh, setup. 
So uh, the key in here is uh, combining this technique to make sure that we uh, we limit the emission. So for example, if if we just um, you know burn the uh, waste PCB, for example, so you you produce uh, um, uh, emission to the to, 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 to the to the air, right? But if you do it in a in for example in in copper smelter where you have the liquid uh, copper and liquid slag, that sort of hazardous element can be absorbed into liquid slag. So um, so that uh, you know limit the uh, the uh, uh, emission to the environment. So it comes down to the uh, uh, detail on how we uh, process this or recycle this uh, um, um, uh, mobile tool, for example. Mm. And in, in turn, like kind of picking up picking up on that uh, question, how how much of that kind of recycling process? And you know, when you were talking about the regulations, there's obviously lots of complex regulatory processes intersecting. Like how how much consumer education do you feel has been done and and still has to be done to make you know the general public more aware of of the impact of e waste and recycling and and maybe holding onto their devices a little bit longer. Yeah. So, um, so uh, if we're speaking in Australia, so now we actually um, um, uh, in, in a better condition uh, compared to a few years back. So, uh, for example, um, in line with sort of, for example, support from the government on trying to find a solution uh, to to recycle uh, and recover these valuable elements in a more environmentally way in terms of technology and process. But there's also uh, support and funding for, uh, for example, outreach to, um, to, uh, to consumers, to the community at large on, um, you know, how to um, yeah, about e-waste and what's the value of e-waste and how we should sort of treat e-waste, for example. Uh, we cannot really, uh, you know, just throw that away uh, in a bin, for example. Uh, and, and I think now the council also uh, understand that there's special sort of uh, uh, bin or special sort of scheme for collecting um, uh, e-waste um, and so on. So uh, in, in Australia, contact is, is much uh, better now, and there's a lot of uh, outreach and uh, and also sort of you know, education scheme uh, to the community. Cool. And just just following on from that, like we obviously have a, an audience of very tech savvy um, and tech engaged um, listeners. Um, for those types of types of people, what would you what would you advise them to be doing now? What should they be advocating for? Like, who should they be talking to? Maybe a local council or a government level to to push this agenda forward. Um, yeah. So it it should be at at a different level, of course. So. Um, um, you know, at, at council level as well, uh, making sure that uh, you know the council also understand uh, how to deal with uh, this uh, e-waste, uh, uh, and also um, uh, to 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 uh, state government and also to uh, uh, to federal government as well. So, um, like for example, um, I was in a um, consortium of research about seven years back. Um, and um, uh, basically, uh, at that time, there's no sort of uh, clear um, or, or many uh, sort of effort in in trying to deal with e-waste. Uh, and we we did the uh, uh, collaboration research 
um, you know, five universities in Australia, CSIRO, and also uh, a university in US, Yale University. Um, and we, we, we provide some recommendations on how to make um, to make recycling works in Australia, and and that seems to help. Well, more, more, more. Uh, for example, scheme and also more uh, uh, funding and also support to um, to um, solve this problem. This actually uh, came came up after that sort of uh, uh, effort there. So it, it should be at different level. Well, you've definitely been working at a very complex end of the recycling spectrum and we really appreciate you sharing some of your information with us tonight. We've been speaking with Professor Akbar Ramdani, who's from Swinburne University, and you can look up more of their research there. Thanks so much for speaking with us tonight, Akbar. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. A major witness in the United States Department of Justice case against Julian Assange has admitted to fabricating key accusations in the indictment against the WikiLeaks founder. Julian Burnside is an eminent barrister and Queen's counsel and human rights advocate and part of Julian Assange's legal team. We invited him to speak with us tonight about Assange's ongoing legal difficulties and Australia's responsibility to citizens facing legal trouble around the world. Welcome to the show, Julian. Hi, thank you. Pleasure. Um, Hopefully uh, our listeners have been keeping up with the latest news Um, But a quick recap for anyone who might have missed it is that um, there's an Icelandic uh, person of interest in the case who's admitted that the main allegations he made against Assange, which form a central component of the US indictment against the WikiLeaks founder, were lies offered in exchange for immunity from American prosecution. That's a quick summary of it. Julian, how would you describe the recent revelations in the case? Well, it's pretty startling. I mean, it, it, uh, it's, it's important, I think, to bear in mind that the basis on which extradition was refused on the 4th of January this year was that uh, the impact on Assange's health would be uh, so extreme and that invokes uh, the that invokes the provisions of the Extradition Act, um, which I don't remember which particular section. I think it's Section 91 of the Extradition Act. Anyway, um, the fact that there is now a factual problem at the heart of the prosecution is important, and especially it'll be important when the appeal brought by America comes before the courts in England uh, later this year. Yes, and when people are considering um, the the string of indictments that Julian's been under to get to this point, um, we're currently, I think, dealing with indictment number 18, which wrapped up the existing 17 Espionage Act charges against Assange over WikiLeaks um, in uh, 2010 and 2011. Uh, yep. They were publicised. Uh, publici- publishing, excuse me, US Army war logs from Iraq and Afghanistan with hundreds of thousands of American diplomatic cables. Now, that data was leaked by whistleblower Chelsea Manning. In January last year, that 18th charge 
had been, um, oh, I've heard the word used demolished um, by your evidence showing that Assange Manning had not hacked into any American computer system. Um, There is now really strong US public discourse around the Espionage Act charges against Assange being an attempt to criminalise press freedom and being in violation of international law and the US First Amendment. Um, In Australia, we don't have some of those laws. So where do you think, um, you know, the dialogue sits from a human rights point of view in Australia? You know, how should Australians be advocating and be concerned about this case? Look, um, I think Australians can advocate all they like, but our government simply will not help. And I say that because my own experience is that I was in London in June of 2012, which was the year that Assange went into the Ecuadorian embassy. I went and saw him there, and with his help, I drafted a letter to the then Attorney General, Nicola Roxon, Labor Party, um, in in which I set out, look, the, the essential point... That, of the reason that he's gone into the embassy is so that he can't be extradited to Sweden because Sweden has an arrangement with the US which would or could result in Assange being sent over to the US, which was at a time when Chelsea Manning was being shockingly badly treated by the American prosecution. And and I said that uh, Assange was fearful of experiencing the same sort of treatment uh, the the then Attorney General of Australia, um, frankly, did nothing, absolutely nothing, to help Assange. What what she could have done was to make an arrangement with the English government that uh, he would be picked up by Australians at the embassy and taken directly to the airport, where he could be returned to Australia. Now, uh, that would have been pretty sim- That would have been pretty simple way of helping him in a practical sense. Uh, A bit later, I also wrote to uh, uh, a Liberal Prime Minister, whom I had met a couple of times, and explained the problem that Assange was facing and why it was necessary for the Australian government to help him. And again, nothing at all was done. So, um, frankly, right now, getting him out of... uh, the Belmarsh Jail in order to get him back to Australia is, you know, you're dreaming. Mm. It it, it should happen. It should happen, but it it won't. It would be very complex. And um, this case raises a couple of rather horrible prospects. One is that if you're in Australia overseas and you're in trouble, the Australian government, frankly, will not help you. Second... um, if you're an Australian journalist overseas, um, then not only will the government not help you if you're in trouble, but journalists should be able to tell the truth about what's going on. This this uh, expedition really brings to the fore the the question cited in relation to Daniel Ellsberg in 1973. You may recall that Daniel Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers and... Uh, he provided the papers to the New York Times and the Washington Post and possibly another newspaper I can't remember. Mm. And um, the uh, 
the government of the United States, uh, because of the First Amendment, the government was unable to establish that it was wrong of the newspapers to publish material. Now, Assange is in the position of being a publisher. You know, the what this bloke who's now referred to as the teenager, uh, this new witness, he... Uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Sigurd Sigi Thordarsson. Thordarsson, yes. Thank you. Um, he uh, he says that, uh, that Assange persuaded him to hack into computers. There's no substantial evidence, as far as I'm aware, of Assange having done any of the things that would, if done by him, arguably amount to um, the various offences that he's alleged to have committed. But uh, he, he is, his role was as a publisher of WikiLeaks. Now, if he receives material, even if he asks for material, uh, as long as he has no role in the hacking, um, then he is really just giving rise to what Daniel Ellsberg uh, helped identify as the freedom of speech of people in America. And interestingly, Daniel Ellsberg gave evidence at the at the extradition hearing in London. So, can you help clear up for us? Um, the US actually has relatively great um, press freedom, you know, enshrined, you know, in their freedom of speech and yeah, yeah, in their yeah. constitution. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, the fact that Julian is a publisher, you know, outside of their jurisdiction and they want to take him to their jurisdiction and charge him there. Is, is there no conflict there, you know, that they see of those two values? Yes, there is a conflict, but they don't care because the way they will get him, and I think this is the essence of the decision not to extradite him, the essence of their way of punishing him is that by special administrative measures, when he's in jail, awaiting trial. You know, they, they would treat him very badly. And the, uh, the use of special administrative measures, which are referred to in the judgment as SAMs, um, will really give you a fair idea of the kind of treatment that he would be, that he would be subject to if he was taken there, including, including um, 24 hours a day solitary confinement, um, minimal contact with people outside, uh, the um, uh, the evidence was that if he was uh, subject to a pre-trial SAM, uh, he would probably not be allowed to see anyone, uh, including lawyers, except except whilst other prisoners were asleep, and uh, he would be limited to something like thirty minutes. Uh, of visits or phone calls per month. Mm. Now, that's just monstrous. Mm. Well, thank you for describing some of those um, grim uh, scenarios that Assange might be facing if he does indeed get extradited. Can you shed any light for us on 
why um, Chelsea Manning as a key whistleblower related to Assange's case has been able to, you know, be charged, be in the, pen, you know, in the prison system in the States and be out already um, while we still see such severe consequences for, for Julian Assange. Yeah, like, like facing the prospect of 175 years mm-hmm. in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, the short answer is I don't, I don't know. I have not read the details of Chelsea Manning's case, but my understanding is that um, she, the charges she faced were charges of actual, um, actually getting material which she was not permitted to get. Uh, although although the, the extradition judgment tends to downplay the seriousness of those documents, uh, I, I think the big thing that Assange did, which really annoyed the Americans, is that he produced collateral murder. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the video showing absolutely appalling conduct by American troops in Iraq, um, in which they, you know, the, the key bit is that they assassinate a number of people, including journalists, from a low-flying helicopter by machine-gunning them. And it, it made America look shocking. And I think that really started the attacks on him. Now, I don't know because I'm only viewing that from outside, but that's my opinion of it. I think that's um, the the view most of us have in that, you know, we we can only view from the outside. So thank you for doing what you can to bring us a little bit of the inside of this this ongoing case of of real concern to to Australians. Um, Yeah, Julian Burnside, thanks so much for speaking to us tonight. Is there anything you'd you'd like to share before you go? Um, Look, I just, I don't think there's, I, I think we need to all be aware that this, that our government in Australia, um, is not willing to help Australians overseas who are in difficulty, as witnessed recently the Australians who are in India and uh, want to get back to Australia because of the risk of COVID over there. Um, but the fact that Assange has been basically ignored, I think, is appalling, and we should all be horrified at the idea that someone who simply wants to get the news to Australians... Uh, is being treated like this. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly sobering to to look at it and really think is. how long people have been struggling to to write this. Um, and well, that that's true. That's true. But also consider um, what what would happen if he was if he was put in if he was extradited and. Uh, tried quickly rather than held in such horrifying conditions that he tried to kill himself. Um, Imagine after 20 years in jail, how many Australians are going to remember Mm. that there's an Australian in jail in, in America because of what he did, because he drew our attention to things through that video, Collateral Murder, which is not, by the way, part of the allegations against him. Is that so? That's fascinating. I, did, I wasn't yeah, no, aware no, of that. No, he's, not, he's not charged with publishing the collateral murder video, um, but I think it is central to the mm. motivation of the Americans in prosecuting him mm. or seeking to prosecute.
prosecute him. And definitely features heavily in the documentary about Chelsea Manning. If anyone gets a chance to view that, it's um, it's worth viewing. Thank you so it's much. Also, it's, yeah. also, it's also really important to remember the way Chelsea Manning was treated mm. in jail and when she was in jail and refused to give evidence uh, in a grand jury hearing, which I suspect was a grand jury hearing in relation to Assange. Mm-hmm. Um, she was held in solitary confinement for 24 hours a day. In fact, the, the standard SAMS treatment. Mm. Now, we, we, should be, we should all be horrified at the prospect that an Australian would be treated like that by one of our, one of our co-Australians. Mm. You know, the, the, the time seems to have long passed when governments existed, at least in part, to help members of the community, which is what he is. He certainly is a member of our, compu- our community. Um, you know, used to meet some fellow computer enthusiasts on the steps of Flinders Street Station. Who hasn't done yeah. that here? Who hasn't yeah. done that in our community? Not, not for a very long time. Yes. Oddly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I first met Assange when he was... I don't, I don't actually remember this, but he told me about it when I saw him in London at the embassy. Um, but I first acted for him in, I think, the mid-1980s when he had been charged with computer, some sort of computer um, misconduct. He, he was, I mean, he, he really does seem to understand, he really does seem to understand computers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. uh, which, is, which is fantastic. But that does not mean that he should be uh, placed at risk of suicide or serious um, the, the, the relevant provision of the Extradition Act is Section 91, and it says that this section applies if at any time in the extradition hearing it appears to the judge that the condition in subsection 2 is satisfied, and the condition is that the physical or mental condition of the person is such that it would be unjust or oppressive to extradite him. Well, I think it would be unjust and oppressive to extradite him, given the treatment that he's likely to face uh, if it is, if it mirrors the treatment that Chelsea Manning faced, we hear you. Um, and we, yeah. we should all, all of us Australians, we should all be concerned about the way he is likely to be treated by the Americans, mm. who are, after all, our allies, mm. except when it suits them. <laughs> we are speaking to Julian Burnside. You can find more live information straight from the source on Twitter at Julian Burnside. Do get on there and keep up with this very important Assange case. Um, Thank you so much for speaking with us this evening and um, helping bring some light to everything. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Paul, some significant developments on the free play front. I love free play <laughs> free news. Play what have we got? Um, so for those of, those of you who are regular listeners to the show, know that we're big supporters um, of the Free Play Independent Games Festival, um, which happened a few weeks ago, but they just had... Uh, That's their... Free Play tweeting us now. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> it, was my, it was my virus check software. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to date. <laughs> That's a comfort. Um so the Free Play Awards uh, just happened um, 
this past weekend. Um, so if you are in the mood for some super interesting, super experimental, super weird uh, video games and non-digital games as well, um, you can check them out at www.freeplay.net.eu slash awards. Um, there is some amazing work there. I'm super excited to play Yumarangi Generation, um, which won the, the Free Play Award. But there's some amazing mm-hmm. other stuff. The great thing about the Free Play Awards as well is that, um, obviously, for many events, they were they were online. So you can go and watch the very, very, very funny um, award ceremony with the pre-recorded, again, very, very funny um uh, acceptance speeches uh, of people who were sometimes quite surprised. You can also listen back to our um, interview last year with the uh, developer of um, Umerangi Generation as well, which was a great interview. Mm. Yeah, fantastic to see it go all the way yeah. to the top of the free play charts. Beautiful stuff. Um, there is an event coming up in uh, July. I'm waiting for confirmation of the actual date um it's the opening of the science gallery um exhibition mental so for those who haven't been poking around parkville lately which is a lot of us uh there is a fabulous new melbourne university building there which is holding a whole lot of their computing faculty but it also includes this new spectacular science gallery i've seen photographs it's been a broad chat it is so gorgeous but um, if you want a chance to actually check it out, do look at melbourne.sciencegallery.com and check out their mental exhibition. Paul, do you know anything else about yeah, it? Yes, so it opens uh, on the 20th of July. Obviously, it was sadly postponed mm. um, due to the, the pandemic. But they describe it as a welcoming place to confront social, societal, sorry, <laughs> getting to the end of the day, uh, societal bias and stereotypes around mental health. And it contains over 20 experimental projects from local and international artists. Beautiful. Hey, a big thank you to our guests this evening, Professor Akbar Ramdani and Julian Burnside Q. See, we, we've had all the titles this evening. Big thank you to my co-hosts, Joe Eaton and Paul Callahan. Thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been bite into it. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.